congregation, his beloved kids. Multiple times he refers to the entire church as his beloved children. And so it's natural to understand he's not changing that here. When, he not, when John looks at this church and he calls them his children and he addresses the children, he, he's talking about the entire congregation. But what about the young men and the old men? Why does he then single that out? Well, some people think, well, he's talking to the entire church, but then he breaks the church up into two groups. Those who are young in their maturity in their faith and those who are more mature in their faith. The immature believers and the more mature believers. The young believers and the more mature believers. Uh, some people think that, and I don't think you lose anything by, by believing that. But I don't think, again, it's the most accurate. Most people, most commentators think that John is talking to the entire congregation and that he uses a particular device here saying, I'm talking to my entire family, all the beloved children from the young to the old and everyone in between. This is what I'm saying to you. It's a rhetorical device showing both ends of the extreme. And I think that's what John's doing because what you'll see is the truths that he's trying to encourage them in are true of all believers in Christ, whether you're young, old, male, or female. They're to be true of all followers of Christ. So John's looking at the entire church and, and this is who he's talking to. And he calls their attention back to four big gospel realities that we've got to be able to encourage ourselves in, strengthen ourselves in, and encourage one another in, and strengthen one another in. And here they are. As a follower of Christ, you are forgiven through Jesus. As a follower of Christ, you are victorious through Jesus. As a follower of Christ, you are strengthened by God's word about Jesus. As a follower of Christ, you have fellowship with God the Father and with his son, Jesus Christ. Forgiveness, courage, strength, victory, fellowship, those are all factual realities that are true about every follower of Jesus Christ. And those things are to be the source of delight and affection in the heart and in the soul of a follower of Christ. And as they are, they plant and cultivate in God's people a deep and abiding joy. They produce humility. They produce the right motivation for obedience. They produce the right motivation for conformity to the image of Christ. This is what is to be true in the source of, in the foundation of all growth in the follower of Christ. These gospel realities. So let's look at them really quickly because each and every single one of them could be an entire sermon, an entire series. First one, as a follower of Christ, you are forgiven because of and through Jesus. Verse 12, this is what he says. I am writing to you, little children. All my children, John is saying, this wise old pastor, all of you, all my kids, I'm writing to you, little children because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. As he's already told us, he's already gone here before. He's just reminding us again, the gospel, the good news about who God is for us through Jesus Christ is only good news for those who understand themselves to be sinners. It is only good news for those who know themselves to be sinners. He's already said, yes, you're a new creation in Christ, as Paul said. God's new promise has been fulfilled in your life. Your heart of stone has been removed. The heart of flesh has been given. And that heart of flesh has a new spirit, the very spirit of God that raised Jesus from the dead. He's working new delights and new affections in that new heart for God and for his glory. But if you say as a follower of Christ that now because of that you have no sin, you're foolish. John's already said you're self-deceived. And in fact, you're calling God a liar. 
said, no, you still deal with sin. The law of sin is still at work in you, even though you are a follower of Christ. You never grow out of your need for the gospel. And you still benefit on a daily basis and grow in delight on a daily basis for the truthfulness of the gospel to the degree that you still see yourself as a sinner. It's at that point as we see our struggle with sin. We see our dependency upon God. We see his provision for our sin in the person of Jesus. We see Jesus, the righteous one, John has said. The one who didn't consider equality with God as something to be grasped, or as some translations say in Philippians 3, something to be robbed of God. But in humility, he came to this earth and he took on flesh in the form of a servant. And he lived every single day of his life on this earth in our place, the life that God had created for us to live. Tempted in every way as you and I are, Jesus delighted in the glory of God the Father and his delight in knowing whose he was produced the motivation in his life as a man here on this earth to live in obedience to the will of the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous one, lived the life that you and I were created to live. And John said, then he became your propitiation for your sins. He then willingly laid his physical body down to be tortured, to be brutally destroyed, to be nailed to a cross. And on that cross, in his physical body, to have the wrath of God, the just, righteous wrath of God for sin exhausted in his body. Jesus willingly became a sacrifice for your sin and endured the wrath of God in your place for your sin. He suffered and he died. And God, acknowledging the satisfaction of Jesus' sacrifice in your place, then raised him from the dead. And John said, this Jesus, the righteous one who lived the life that you were created to live and then died to pay the price for the life that you live instead, he now is the propitiation for your sins. He has made the sacrifice that no other sacrifice could ever complete. He has now paid the price that no other sacrifice could pay. Nothing you could ever do could ever earn. He has paid the price for your sin and averted the wrath of God from those who place their faith in his person and in his work for the forgiveness of their sins. And now for those who do, when you sin because you do, in thought, in word, in deed, in action, and in motivation, Jesus, the righteous one, the propitiation for your sins, now stands before God the Father as your advocate. He stands before God the Father and says, yes, Father, you can forgive them. Your mercy and your grace can be shown upon them. Why? Because I have paid the price for their sin. And Jesus pleads his sacrifice in our place for our sin. And John's already said in chapter one that God, he's faithful and he's just to forgive us of our sins. So when Jesus pleads his sacrifice in our place for our sin, the faithfulness of God forgives us as he has promised and the justice of God promises us never, never, to pour his wrath out for our sin on us again because he's already exhausted it in his son. John says you are forgiven from your sins because of Jesus. I love what he says here because this is where we go wrong on a daily basis. If we never get past this verse, we'll be okay this morning. You are forgiven as a follower of Christ for your sins, but it's in his name. It's for his name's sake that you are forgiven. 
You see, the reason that we bounce around like ping pong balls on a day in and day out basis, some days really arrogant of our, of our maturity, some days looking at our life and going, you know what, I'm doing a pretty good job. I'm being a pretty good Christian. I'm obeying the commands pretty well and begin to look down on other people because they're not doing such a great job. And they're not measuring up to our standards. But we have a good day. And so we feel pretty confident because of our, our good day and our own obedience and our own ability. But the next day, we're bouncing over here to the other side of the table and just wallowing in guilt and despair and depression because we're looking at our life and going, I have no capacity within myself to do what God's called me to do. Every single day, I wake up to some desire to want to be obedient, but I still do the same thing over and over and over again. This same desire, the same temptation, the same besetting sin, some of you are familiar with that term, still gets me every single day. And far from being smug and self-righteous, Far from being arrogant, over here on our bad days, we're going, I don't deserve the forgiveness of God. Who am I to come to God? I mean, look at me. I'm a mess. I'm a wreck. I've exhausted his forgiveness. He has nothing left for me. Who am I to actually go to him with this? I don't deserve it. And the problem with both of those things, the smug self-righteousness and arrogance because we're having a pretty good day, and the despair and the depression and the feeling of unworthiness because we're having a pretty bad day, both of those focus on our performance and not God's grace. Both of those recognize to some degree that we're, that we're forgiven because of Jesus, but on a day-in and day-out basis, we value our forgiveness and judge our forgiveness based on our performance instead of his. And John's saying, no, 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 no. You are forgiven as a follower of Christ for your sin, but it's for his name's sake. It's because of who he is and what he's done. When you start judging your forgiveness and valuing your forgiveness and finding assurance and confidence in the forgiveness of God based on your performance, either good or bad, you're going to go off the rails. Every single day, you've got to remind yourself and remind one another and encourage yourself and find strength in the fact that you are forgiven, but you're forgiven for Jesus' name's sake. You can't move away from the gospel. You can't move away from the good news of what God has done for us in Christ and try to relate to God and connect with God and find assurance from God based on yourself and your own performance. This is why John is constantly coming back to this and now clearly reminding this church, followers of Christ, you are forgiven, but you're forgiven for his name's sake. Your assurance is based on the fact that your sins are forgiven through the blood of Jesus for his namesake and his glory. And this is something we've got to go back to the well every single day to encourage ourselves in, to find confidence in, to have that be the foundation and the motivation for our obedience in our life before God on a daily basis. My buddies, who's a pastor in, in Durham, uh, J.D. Greer, he, he, he has a particular prayer he prays every single day to remind himself of the truthfulness of the gospel. And one part of the prayer is this, and it matches up with this perfectly. He says this, and this is what we've got to get every day. He says, in Christ, there is nothing that I can do that would make you love me more and nothing that I've done that makes you love me less. This is the truth of the gospel that is true for every follower of Christ. You are forgiven of your sins through Jesus for his name's sake. But John goes on. He said, you're forgiven. Fact. Indicative. That is true of you if you're a follower of Christ. But he also says you're victorious in Christ. Twice in these verses, John says that as followers of Christ, we have overcome the evil one. 
And so where John may have, have just been reminding us and encouraging us and, and directing our delight and our affection towards the fact that we have been forgiven and the penalty of our sin has been wiped away. Our sin is, is as far as the east is from the west to, the God, to God. The penalty of our sin has been forgiven. John's now directing our attention to the fact that the power of sin over us has been broken. The power of Satan, the power of the evil one, and the power of sin over a follower of Christ has been broken. That in the life and the death and ultimately the resurrection of Jesus, there has been a decisive victory won over Satan's sin and death. Jesus, through his resurrection, proclaimed and demonstrated the victory that he had over those things. And a much wiser pastor say these things better than me. So listen to John Stott. This is what John Stott says about this. He says, it's impossible for death to keep its hold on Jesus because death had already been defeated. The evil principalities and powers which had been deprived of their weapons and their dignity at the cross were now in consequence put under his feet and made subject to him as Jesus was raised from the dead and ascended to the right hand of God the Father. Listen to what he says. So now, every Christian conversion involves a power encounter in which the devil is obliged to relax his hold on somebody's life and the superior power of Jesus Christ is tangibly and visibly demonstrated. As a follower of Christ, you are decisively victorious over the power of sin because of Jesus. And the evil one who has been defeated through the death and resurrection of Jesus knows this. And he knows the only weapon that he has and the only power that he can muster against a follower of Christ is to convince them that sin still has some kind of power on them. And the way that he does that is by condemning you and by trying to get you to to wallow in that guilt that says you've gone to the well too much. There is no more forgiveness in you. This sin, this besetting sin over and over again, it's, it's beyond the reach of God. And as long as he can get us wallowing in this guilt and in this condemnation, we can begin to sense that sin has some kind of power over us when it doesn't. But this is precisely where we need the gospel every day. As we go back to remind ourselves that we are forgiven for Jesus' sake. Our sin has been forgiven. This begins to take the ax to the root of Satan's schemes. When you can live in the good of the gospel every day and not under the condemnation of guilt, he has no power over you. All he has is lie and accusation of which you have the truth and the gospel to combat it. You as a follower of Christ are decisively victorious over the the evil one. Sin has no power over you any longer. The Apostle Paul brings these two things, forgiveness and victory together in in Colossians chapter two. Just just listen to how he does it. Colossians 2, 13 and 14, Paul says, you who were dead in your trespasses, so your sin, you were dead in your sin, and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, talking about Jesus, having forgiven us all of our trespasses. So there's all of your sin forgiven in and through Jesus, done by God, for his glory. So there's forgiveness. Verse 14, he did this by canceling the record of debt that stood against you with its legal demands. So there's all of your sin, all of your transgression of God's law. There's that record of your debt. God canceled it out. This he set aside, your sin, your record of sin, he set it aside by nailing it to the cross 
And in that, Paul said, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. You are forgiven in Jesus. You are victorious over the power of sin through Jesus. I love how J.D. goes in mean, his prayer. I love it. He goes straight from forgiveness. Now he's going to go to this. And this is what he says. This is what we've got to know every day. He says, as I pray, now as I've dealt with forgiveness, as I pray, I now measure God's compassion by the cross. We see the depth of God's compassion by the cross, by the lengths to which he went to forgive us. But then we measure his power by the resurrection. And the promises that are true for a follower of Christ because of the power of God demonstrated in the resurrection. You are forgiven and you are decisively victorious over the evil one. And John goes on and says, there's a third thing. So if you're a follower of Christ now, you are strengthened in your daily battle. He is a defeated foe, the evil one, but he hasn't given up yet. And the law of sin still remains at work in you. There's battles still to be fought, but the victory has already been won. And he says, you who are a follower of Christ, you're now strengthened by the word of God about the Son of God, Jesus Christ. The strength for which you need for the battle with which you fight comes from the word of God abiding richly in you is what John is saying. The strength to be who you are. The strength to live out the indicative truths that are true of you because of Jesus. The strength to do that comes from the word of God about Jesus. You cannot bypass God's word in this. No matter how many quick little slogans I can give you or a book can give you or someone else can give you, the strength to do battle on a daily basis to believe what's true about God and true about you comes from the word of God alone. Your strength to triumph daily comes from this word abiding in you. If you close me out from here on, don't miss that. It comes from God's word about God's son. Again, wiser pastors say it better than I do. Listen, my hero, John Piper, he says this. He says, we overcome the evil one by the word of God because day by day this word is abiding in us. It's living in us. The word of God is alive within you. The gospel, that's what we're talking about, the gospel, the great story of redemption and the great Christ of redemption and the great God of redemption and the great process of redemption and the great effects of redemption. This gospel, this word of God is not something to be believed in and then left behind. It actually says that if what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and the Father. So when we believe the word of God, and it abides in us and it lives in us, this abiding, believing word we begin to enjoy and this abiding, we enjoy the application of Christ's work and the defeat of the devil in all of his accusations in our life. What enables us and strengthens us to deal with the accusations of the enemy, the one thing he's got to try to get us to think he has some kind of power over us, the accusations that we're too far off, that God isn't true to his promise, the lies that he can get us to believe that would take us away from the truth of this gospel, the strength that we have to do battle with those comes from the word of God being alive in us. So you can never, as a follower of Christ, leave the word of God behind. You can never move on from it. The apostle Paul and Piper quoted him, said it's living, it's active. It's the very word of God that's alive in us, that's conforming the desires and the affections of our heart to find the sacrifice and the wisdom of God and the sacrifice of his son for our sins, something to delight in. 
Something to trust. You want trust in God's promises and in the word of God and the gospel? Go to his word. It's alive. It's living and abiding in you and the spirit of God is at work in you. You want to trust that what he says about himself and you is true? Go to his word. It's not dead. It's alive. And as it abides in you, it does work in you. You're strengthened for your battle against sin by God's word about God's son. So you've got to immerse yourself in it. And fourth, he gives us one more big truth. It's the one he started the letter off with. This is the one that he was pointing the church's eyes and hearts to from the very beginning. If you're a follower of Christ, you have fellowship with God the Father and with his son, Jesus. I mean, and this is where John started by pointing their affections to the fellowship that they had with one another, but that their fellowship with one another was with God the Father and with his son, Jesus. This is the ultimate treasure. I mean, this really is the ultimate treasure of the Christian life. The gospel is, is often called the gospel of God. It's actually called the gospel of God in Scripture. Not just because it's from God or it's accomplished by God, um, but it, because it ultimately leads us to God. It ultimately leads us to God. As great and as rich as forgiveness is, and praise God for it. As great and as rich as victory is, praise God for it. As great, as rich as his word, alive in us, strengthening us for battle is, praise God for it. The true and the deepest treasure of the gospel is that we get God. This is why John started there. He's drawing our attention back to the fact that because of Jesus and his work in our place for our sin, we are now connected to God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And we have the experience of relationship with them that they have with one another. This is what we get as a follower of Christ. We get God. He is the deepest and the richest treasure of the gospel. Everything, everything that Jesus accomplished ultimately was bringing us to this end. To bring us to God. Peter actually wrote another letter to the church, one of the apostles, Peter. In 1 Peter 3.18, he actually said this. Jesus Christ died once for all. He's going to tell you why. Jesus Christ died once for all. Ask him why. Say, why, Peter? So that he might bring us to God. The ends for which the forgiveness, the ends for which the strength, the ends for which the victory are ultimately for is to bring us to God. That even right now, right here in this life, on this earth, when you face things like David faced, you have fellowship with God the living and abiding God. This is what we have as a follower of Christ. The gospel of God is from God. It comes through God. It leads us to God. And it's in that relationship with God that our soul finds its truest rest and its truest joy. And this is what he told them in the beginning. I want to remind you of the fellowship that we have with one another, that our fellowship is with God the Father, with the Son Jesus. And we're writing this to you so that you would have Joy. Joy. It comes from the relationship that we have as followers of Christ with God. This is one of the truths that we have to remind ourselves of every single day. I'll take you back to another wise pastor. I've already been telling you, JD. He's been praying this prayer every single day about the gospel, reminding himself of the truths of the gospel every day. He finishes it up like this. Your presence your approval, 
They're all I need for everlasting joy. We believe that. We fight to believe that. It's when the gospel becomes true and a delight for us in that, that we see our obedience and our security and our strength and our courage spring from who God is for us and not from what we can try to muster up for ourselves and for him. And and here's the thing. As John's been telling us already, I'm I'm, going to take you to how this kind of works itself out here at the end. As these things become true for us, tangibly like David, they, they, they are ours. Like David encouraged himself and the Lord his God. When we encourage ourselves and we encourage one another in the truths of the gospel, the, the indicative statements that are true about us, when we learn to encourage ourselves and strengthen ourselves in these things every single day. That's what the Apostle Paul told the church in Corinth. We begin to behold, as in a mirror, the glory of the Lord. And as we do that, behold the glory of the Lord every single day, the glory of God and who he is and what he's done. We, be, we are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. The key to that ongoing growth and maturation, it's not something different than what we started with. It's beholding like in a mirror every single day, the glory of God. About three verses later, the apostle Paul called the gospel the glory of Christ. As we behold in the gospel the glory of God and the glory of Christ, day in and day out, we're being conformed into the image of Christ and our character is being conformed to reflect the character of Christ. And as we do, listen to me, as we do, the gospel and the power of God in us does not then terminate on us. So listen, as we strengthen ourselves and encourage ourselves day in and day out in the truth of the gospel and we encourage one another in the truth of the gospel as we begin to delight in that and our affections grow for that a corresponding desire will begin to grow in your heart by the spirit of God for those who have never tasted the grace of God you want a heart like the apostle Paul's for those who don't know God you want a heart like Paul's like he talks about in Romans 9 for his own people You need to encourage yourself in the truthfulness of the gospel, just like Paul did in Romans 5 through 8. As the gospel becomes real and it becomes a delight for you, a corresponding desire will grow in your heart for those who've never tasted it. And you'll be burdened to bring the good news of God's grace to those who don't know it. And as it becomes an increasing delight in you and motivation for you, the love with which you have received from God in the gospel is growing in you will produce the motivation you need to be obedient to his command to love others as he's loved you. And you'll begin to love your brothers and sisters just as Christ has loved you. And the motivation comes from a delight and affection in the good news of how God has loved you in his son Jesus. As you have been to me, so I will be to others. This is what the gospel begins to produce in us. How do you begin to do that in your life on a daily basis? How do you begin to encourage yourself and strengthen yourself in the gospel on a daily basis? Let me give you a couple ideas. One, memorize God's word about God's son that's explicitly related to the gospel. Memorize 1 John 2, 1 through 3. Brothers and sisters, do not sin, but when you do, 
memorize what John's promise to us in God's word is about Jesus being our propitiation for our sins and our advocate before the Father. Memorize 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. Memorize Romans 8, 28 through 31. Memorize portions of Isaiah 53. Memorize God's word about God's son. Let it begin to abide richly in you. Let it begin to abide in you and live in you. Be active in you. Begin to do work of cultivating your soul. Memorize God's word. Remember, along with that, how God has already changed you. Remember who you were apart from God's grace. Recognize the change that has been at work in your life because of the gospel. Remember who you were apart from God's grace. Become a hunter of the evidences of God's grace in your own life. Recognize his work in you and celebrate that. Let that encourage you towards further faith in who he is and what he's done and what he's doing in you. Let that become the way you begin to look at other people. Become a hunter of God's grace at work in other people. Sidebar, you find yourself relatively critical of other people? Make it your aim to look for the evidence of God's grace in other people's lives. Every single day, make a list of people that you will not go to bed before you can write down an evidence of God's grace that you've seen in their life. I guarantee you, you make that a habit, it will change the way you look at people. It will change your perspective on people. It'll change your perspective on yourself. Let God's grace at work in you and his past work in you begin to compel confidence in you for who he is and what he's done. Then most importantly, and I'll close this way, study the gospel. Study it. Make yourself a student of the gospel. The student of God's work for God's people through God's son. Get your Bible and begin to study it. And let me, let me point you, I get, no, I get no profit from this and neither does the writer. But I've been reading you some of the things that one of my friends has been writing, JD. This is a book that he has written on the gospel. It might be my favorite contemporary explanation and application of these very truths and indicative statements of the gospel. Get this book, get your Bible, and together read them with your spouse, your husband, your wife. Read them with your community group. If you get together with a new mom's group, agree to get this book in your Bible and read it together. Uh, get, if you're in a 3D group with other people, get your Bible, get this book, read it together. Study God's word and the gospel. May God's word and grow and abide richly in you. And may we grow in our confidence and affection and satisfaction and delight in who God is for us in Jesus. That we would be people who encourage one another and strengthen one another in the indicative statements, the truthful statements of the gospel, who we are because of the gospel. And may we grow in such delight and appreciation for it that we are quick to be able to encourage ourselves and strengthen ourselves in the gospel. This is what it means to be gospel-centered, to be grace-driven, and to be mission-minded. That's our prayer. That's our prayer for this church. So let me, let me pray for you before we, before we go. God, thank you for your word. I just ask that your spirit would cultivate in the hearts of your people a delight and a satisfaction and an affection and a growing and deepening appreciation for the gospel. For those who've never tasted of the grace of the gospel, for those who've never tasted of the grace of the forgiveness that comes 
from you through your son Jesus, I just pray that you would do what only you can do and you can make that alive and real. Make that alive and real and whatever delights and pleasures and trust we've placed in anything apart from that, Lord, let it fall away. Draw us to a sincere and complete and simple desire in you. Faith in, in you and in your work. We ask this, Lord, for your glory and our joy. Amen.